Support for this podcast is provided by HackerJob, a reverse marketplace that actively vets engineers. HackerJob flips the traditional model on its head, meaning companies apply to engineers versus candidates applying to jobs. With companies getting an 85% response rate to the candidates they reach out to, as well as exposure to tech talent that directly meets their organization's diversity objectives. After all, the ability to attract, hire and retain tech talent from all backgrounds is critical to every organization's success. Companies such as S&P Global, CarMax and SensorTower are all using HackerJob, so why not join them? Go to hackerjob.com future to get your free 30-day trial today. That's hackerjob.com slash future. And hackerjob is spelled H-A-C-K-A-J-O-B. There's been more of scientific discovery, more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi there. Welcome to episode 595 of Recruiting Future with me, Matt Alder. These are turbulent times for talent acquisition, particularly for those teams operating in the technology sector. Despite the continuing demand for technology skills, layoffs are still happening, with many TA teams now considerably downsized from where they were a couple of years ago. Proving TA's strategic and monetary value has never been more critical. So how can TA leaders make their business case against such a challenging backdrop? My guest this week is Sam Bertu, VP of Talent Solutions at HackerJob. Sam combines his experience working with a vast number of TA leaders with HackerJob's huge data set to provide some excellent insights into the tech recruiting market and highly actionable advice on tactics TA can employ to prove the scale of its value to the business. Hi, Sam, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on, buddy. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Please, could you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Yep. Um, so I'm Sam Bertu. Um, I look after talent solutions at HackerJob. Uh, which is a broad title working with customers and their biggest challenges, um, and then also supporting across marketing, new business, and our existing customers. Fantastic. Tell us a little bit more about HackerJob for people who are not familiar with it. HackerJob is a total talent platform for technical hiring. Um, so we are focusing across four key areas. So insights. Um, and when we think about insights, we're thinking about um, the vast set of first-party data, which we capture millions of data points on candidates to give that overall market perspective and overview, data from companies and their hiring processes, and helping identify um, you know, particular bottlenecks or challenges, not just with hacker job candidates, but with their entire hiring funnel, um, and yeah, influencing strategy, um, our brand proposition. Uh, which is across podcasts, events, newsletters. Um, and really, um, what we're looking to do there is elevate organizations' brands and position them as a technology um, employer. Um, and then the last two parts, uh, diversity, equality, and inclusion is a new suite for us um, that's seen great adoption. Um, there's really looking across neurodiversity, ethnicity, sexual orientation data, um, veteran status, gender, 
and allowing organizations to understand what those demographics audiences think about them as a technology brand, how they interact with their process, why they do and don't want to work for them. And then in the context of the broader market, um, you know, what they are from against their kind of competitors as, as a benchmarking exercise. And then the final part, which is what we're best known for, is our two-sided marketplace, uh, which allows candidates to have control of the process where employers are connecting with candidates that are matched to them via an algorithm, the largest marketplace in the UK and the fastest growing in the US. Fantastic stuff. And it's been an interesting couple of years in the tech space, you know, lots of headlines about layoffs. In fact, we've seen some of those, um, more of those th- this week. You obviously have access to a huge amount of data in terms of what's actually going on in the in the market. So what's actually happening? And what do the real trends look like now? Yeah, and I, and I think important to kind of clarify, we're not a complete index of the market. So our data is directional um, in terms of like live jobs and activity and then just more broadly you know kind of wider benchmarking data I think we're seeing this across all sectors not just tech if we zoom out a little bit and if you think the kind of employment figures job advertisement numbers and open requisitions in many industries in many places we are simply returning back to pre-covid hiring volumes and I think there's certainly a resettling that's happening after that hiring boom of 18 months worth of high impact, high velocity hiring across the globe in almost all sectors and industries that followed a period of two years, almost, of very, very reduced hiring. And yeah, I think a big part of it is just a rebalancing that we're seeing of of organizations. From a hacker job perspective, um, certainly the UK and the US, January um, is looking like uh, across all of our major metrics, the highest for successful matches, for new jobs posted, for candidate signups um, across the last kind of 14 or 15 months. So certainly a positive start from the year from um, a job posting perspective. And then when we think about the I suppose that interplay, and, and it's largely in big tech, right? Big tech have been hiring in huge numbers over a sustained period of time, seeing revenue growth that typical organizations, FTSE listed, NASDAQ listed companies would have dreamt of seeing the, the kind of uh, percentage growth which you saw within big tech. And with that followed big waves of hiring and this kind of ambition to work for one of those organizations. Kind of subsequent redundancies, as painful as they are for the individuals involved, are only a fraction of those overall hiring numbers for those organizations over the past kind of 12 to 24 months. So net net, if you look at the US, you know, kind of uh, tech job growth is actually still increasing um, year on year. Um, But yeah, there's certainly a slowing of demand or there was a slowing of demand in, in the past year to the kind of frenetic levels which it was at before. So again, I think Part of it is a, a resettling post-COVID. Part of it is also a resettling in tech from truly disparate levels of supply and demand, which still exist, but just not quite to that same frenetic pace in the past year. But we're certainly seeing that change, you know, in the first month of this year. And I think the the other story behind the headlines is it's not just big tech companies that hire tech people, is it? It's everyone. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we were in conversations this week. Um, there are a number of organizations that are adding two to three thousand new technology roles and they're not tech first organizations. Um, there's tremendous growth in the public sector in both 
the UK and the US when we think about technology roles, big growth in defense, in gaming companies, um, in fintech organizations, in kind of traditional banking, um, you know, launch of Chase in, in the UK uh, is a great example of that. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the news, the story grabbing headlines have been focused on big tech, which, yeah, I think puts a bit of a lens on, on the industry as a whole. Probably one of the other bigger kind of macroeconomic shifts that we're going to see is, you know, almost half of the world's population are going to election this year. And we're going to see a real um, change in one way or another. But the three biggest technology markets in Europe, India and, and the US all going to election. And obviously, there's a lot of migration between those territories in particular for technical talent. And I think that's going to really change that balance as well. So, yes, it's certainly going to be an interesting year coming in as we're, as we're looking ahead. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that, that obviously is true is that any kind of reduction in, in demand for for talent is always going to impact TA. And we saw a couple of years after the pandemic uh, that TA hiring was probably on par with tech hiring in terms of the amount of people who were coming that companies were looking for. But in the last year or so, it's been a pretty tough time for many TA leaders across the board, really, but particularly those attached to tech companies. How do you think they should be looking to position themselves and their teams in their businesses moving forward? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll kind of touch on one other point and, and then come to that because you mentioned, you know, TA leaders, particularly in technology businesses. I think the one other kind of major change in the past year or so is the kind of VC funding private equity market into technology businesses and record numbers of investment. And then subsequently really tailing off um, last year in terms of the volume invested. And what we're seeing in, as a shift in kind of fast growing startups is this growth at all cost mentality is certainly switching to much more sustainable growth. And in part, that has then impacted TA leaders that are working within you know, those kind of fast growing businesses. I think the challenge and this is, you know, an aggregated view of TA leaders that I'm speaking to as opposed to you know, just my own opinion. But I think the challenge that TA leaders have is, you know, like you say, whenever there's a macroeconomic or any form of uncertainty, it swings in either direction. So COVID, obviously, it was a really difficult time for TA leaders and then for that post period, like you say, more in demand than software developers. And then subsequently, you know, in this period, which we're seeing now, many kind of great leaders are, are sitting on the bench, as it were. I think we've still seen some great movements in the start of January, lots and lots of leaders, which I know in my network are um, entering into new positions. But I think the bigger challenge and the bigger kind of press back to the industry as a whole is what's the commercial impact of ATA function? How are we contributing to organizational goals? so that we can add a little bit more of a buffer when we think about TA capacity just being directly aligned to requisitions. And we think about the long-term tenure and impact of TA as a function on the overall business, which I think is the goal, you know, to really safeguard individuals and their teams within these kind of periods of, of lower hiring. What do you see the, the key areas where TA is creating that monetary value for the, for the business? So I'd say something which is fairly ubiquitous, and, and maybe we don't cover this enough as as functions or as an industry, is the operational expenditure and, and time savings within organizations. So that's not just, hey, we've implemented this tool and we've saved our recruiters sourcing time, etc. Um, thinking about it more broadly, you know, you've noticed that there is a 
problem in your process um, and you've changed your hiring process to reduce the amount of time that hiring managers are involved while still not negatively impacting some of those key metrics which you'll be running um, your organization against. And thinking about those hours saved, you know, particularly in the context of a product or technology team, which is by and large in most organizations, some of your most expensive teams on a per person basis, saving thousands and thousands of hours by changing your recruitment process is a significant million pound, multi-million pound um, you know, cost saving to the business. But are we replaying that back or are we playing back the data that sits alongside that, which might be hiring manager experience, candidate experience, recruiter experience um, along the process and our typical kind of conversion metrics and funnel metrics when we think about that? Um, or are leaders able to dovetail and think, well, alongside this, we've actually saved net this many thousand hours. So I think that's a really interesting one, uh, which is pretty ubiquitous. Some of the other ones which are clearer are those revenue generating individuals and it's that empty chair cost and ascertaining the impact of it. Certainly when you're looking at day rate contractors, um, you know, metrics like time to hire all of a sudden have a compounding effect on your ability to generate revenue for your organization. Um, they also avoid revenue leakage and, and slippage when you're unable to deliver on client projects. The same could be said for kind of go-to-market teams when you think about sales, marketing, etc., where there is a clear revenue number attached to individuals that you're hiring into the organization already. It's more subtle and, and more difficult for organizations to do when we're thinking about non-revenue focused individuals, but certainly there are organizations out there that, that are building pretty compelling cases and being able to replay that business impact back to the organization. So they're like some examples, but there's tons of other areas as well. But traditionally, where are we anchored as an industry? We're anchored on cost avoidance. We're anchored on savings versus recruitment agency as opposed to business impact. And invariably, I think the pressure from CFOs back down into HR and then down into TA is, well, we're now at 2% agency reliance or 5% agency reliance. And we've already saved uh, these millions of pounds. So what's next? You know, what is the next kind of piece? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because, you know, certainly the story of the last 10 years is cost avoidance, but things that we, we move in a very different, very different time now. And I suppose the, the challenge for people and, and leaders is, you know, how do they communicate that to their business? I mean, how do you take that data and make it into that compelling case that proves the proactive value of what they do? So I think find somebody difficult um, within the organization. Find somebody that typically challenges your data from a you know, kind of finance background and think about presenting things back in a spreadsheet as opposed to a PowerPoint presentation. You know, a great uh, phrase stolen from Ali Jalani many years ago on, on challenging TA leaders in a room that I was in. And, and I think that is the, the palpable difference. So can you build, a, I suppose, a foundational set of data that is easy to interrogate and stands up to scrutiny that says, hey, by impacting this metric as part of the recruitment funnel, we're able to save hiring managers X amount of time, which to the organization costs this much as a landed cost. And, and here's the multiple and here's the impact over the next three years. If we continue to do this process, you know, this is the revenue impact which we'll be able to have um, on the organization. Of course, alongside that, there's probably then 
you know, layers of variation, right, beyond the foundation, where you can say there's auxiliary benefits, but that's where it becomes harder to attribute it directly to TA. So does that impact tenure? Does that impact employee satisfaction? Does it impact the speed at which you're able to roll out a new product? There's probably impact there. There's probably things which you can point to, but they're maybe not the grounding of being able to replay back that commercial value. And I think there's probably a process where you're building that foundation, having people interrogate it, get it to a place where it stands to scrutiny, and then adding some of those layers on beyond it. And it might just be things to point to. It might be things you can make tangible. What other ways can TA be strategic in 2024? I think some of the, the best you know, functions which I've seen over the years and certainly with um, you know, past in R100 days around those roundtables is understanding the business objectives, understanding those problems and coming back with a range of solutions. It's not just thinking about uh, hiring putting bums on seats. Well, what are the skills that we need in order to reach those business objectives? And actually attaining those skills might not be as simple as adding 500 permanent headcount in these three locations. It might be a blend of building talent for tomorrow and an early careers program because you know you're going to have a sustained need for a particular type of talent in that region. It might be bringing in a third party. It might be offshoring. It might be onshoring. So there's that kind of broader strategic lens where it's almost scenario based where this is the cost implication. These are the benefits. These are the values. And this is what we think the bottom line impact can be on delivering on skills as opposed to headcount. And then, you know, the secondary piece is then, well, all of those operational elements that come alongside it, all of the metrics that drive to deliver those scenarios. How can you play that each one of those individually and talk about incremental operational expenditure impact plus any kind of broader revenue impact which you can which you can drive to it so yeah i think tying yourselves to to business objectives is critical and then thinking about you know something like headcount costs within an organization is often overlooked of you know people being brought in at the right salary who have the right skills and there's particularly in tech you know you've got this opportunity to build networks as a recruiter um you know in areas like cybersecurity and ai and ml where there is still incredibly high volumes of demand versus the supply. It's enormous. And if you've got a recruiter who is only hiring one to two people per year within your team in one of these critical AI ML roles that's transformational for an organization, if you don't have roles that you're expecting as part of your hiring plan for 12 months or, or 18 months, well, what's really going to be your ramp time for somebody to understand the intricacies of your internal workings, plus have a network of people that they can go and reach out to and and build and foster those communities. So even down to the value of an individual talent acquisition partner within an organization, we should be thinking much more longer term and also evidencing that value and impact and thinking about, you know, the cost impact to an organization of of losing somebody who, you know, has those intrinsic networks as well. You obviously work with a, a lot of people and talk to a lot of TA leaders. Who's doing this well? Which clients do you have who are kind of really excelling at this and sort of really moving their team and their and their business forward? So I think as a general rule of thumb, IT service consultancies tend to be, you know, at the kind of more mature end of evidencing business impact. And part of that is just a natural ability to do so because they have revenue generating employees that are directly tied to their hiring goals and the revenue of the org is directly tied to hiring performance. So 
I think as a general rule of thumb, that's a, a really good grouping of, of organizations that are doing this very, very well. Um, when we think about public sector, um, you know, we're often thinking about savings versus contract to spend by bringing permanent headcount in as a big government directive more broadly. Um, so again, pretty tangible and, and easy to, to replay that back. If I think more broadly, you know, the kind of leaders who have always seen do well within this space, um, Dave Vinton, um, you know, now at BP looking at I suppose big structural offshore wind projects that again have that kind of natural inclination because of the time frame to build and deploy that you can have better forward planning, but also an elite leader in able to structure scenarios and replay that back to the business. Um, you know, at that, at that seat at the table level. So I think that's some, yeah, certainly some good examples of organizations that are doing this well. And, and there is a common theme across them. The common theme is there's something tangible which you can attach yourself to. I think what where it becomes more difficult to do so as an organization, if you're in an industry that has big fluctuations in hiring and maybe you're hiring lots of entry level roles, it can be more difficult to kind of ascertain this commercial impact back to the business because there's so many other component parts, um, you know, that impl- like impact revenue. Final question. What do you think the future looks like? What kind of impact is is AI going to have on all of this and, and hiring in particular? Yeah, huge question to finish on. Where, I mean, where could we start? We could, we could get 40 follow-on questions, couldn't we? I think, you know, when it was truly a generational moment, you know, 18 months ago when new kind of waves of large language models were coming to the fore, particularly with OpenAI and, and ChatGPT is the one that kind of captured hearts and minds of individuals and, and businesses alike. And the subsequent rollout of technology based on um, large language models like that and from other providers has been you know, significant and certainly something which we are uh, working with uh, at HackerJob um, today. And, and I think as a TA industry, we often spend a lot of time thinking about where can new technologies be used and applied to impact the hiring process? And of course, there's wide ranging uses for generative AI. And again, we could, we could run over a whole nother podcast thinking about um, the impact from a hiring perspective from an organization's point of view. I think what's more pronounced and certainly what we're seeing and that this is across the board, um, not just in tech roles, but it's, it's more prevalent. It feels in tech roles is AI in the hands of candidates. And there's hundreds of tools out there that are able to automatically apply for roles at pace, creating custom cover letters, custom CDs, and applying to 400 jobs in a matter of minutes across the web. If we think about the big job aggregators that have been pushing largely towards this cost per application model, this is a compounding effect of a pre-existing trend of increasing volumes of applications and not necessarily increasing the relevance with those hundreds and hundreds of tools which are out there now it's now got to the stage from a candidate's perspective that there's now a wave of candidate focused ats's because candidates are in so many processes um three four five six hundred processes that they need auto responders to go back when uh recruiters saying hey we'd like to invite you to interview they've got it synced to their calendar um so that they can find a time within their diary and they've got their own you know kanban dashboard where you think from left to right i'm in 500 applied 400 at first stage well if you had that high hit rate you probably uh, would take a few but you know 500 applied 
50 at first interview stage, three at second interview stage, etc. Again, like to think about the day-to-day impact, we're talking about TA teams that are probably working with reduced teams. They're probably asked to be doing more with less. And then you kind of couple that together with the desire to find the right candidate and your kind of want to not ghost candidates. We see so much stuff on LinkedIn about candidate ghosting and wanting to go back to people. Like, do we need to change the contract between the social contract between candidates and employers here? Because if candidates are spending no time at all in applying for jobs and they're doing it via automation, is there still the requirement for employers? Should you still be having an SLA? Is that limiting your ability to have the broadest possible pool of talent? So I think that's probably the bigger challenge is actually it's enabling candidates to apply en masse, which is causing an operational impact, but it's also going to lead to increasing standardization. We're going to see more and more CVs looking more and more similar, more language in emails and um, in social posts and, and across the board. Anything that's written um, is going to have increasing standardization. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely those challenges there. And then you get into all of the kind of crazy horror stories, which I don't think are as far you know, far spread uh, as they might otherwise seem to be, where you've got candidates with a live feed of speech to text that's putting questions in, that's then feeding you stuff while you're on a video interview to give you the right answer. Like, honestly, if a candidate has gone to that level of, um, you know, ingenuity to nail your interview, you probably want to hire them anyway. <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't see that being too much of a, a widespread issue, but that's certainly like the, you know, the fear mongering stories from the candidate side of do you even know they're real? Is it even them doing it, et cetera? Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a lot of challenges there. And then, as I say, on the employer side, we could talk for days, right, on bringing AI into your process and, and where you can and the ethics of it, et cetera. Sam, thank you very much for joining me. Awesome. Thanks for having us on, Matt. My thanks to Sam. You can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts on Spotify, or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow the show on Instagram. You can find us by searching for Recruiting Future. You can search all the past episodes at recruitingfuture.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter, Recruiting Future Feast, and get the inside track about everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time, and I hope you'll join me. This is my show.